This is episode 145 with Kim Brady. You're tuned in to Forever Athlete Radio, where together we go far. I'm your host, Corey Camp, former Division I swimmer, Forever Athlete founder, and your personal flow coach, helping you optimize your life one conversation at a time. You can call or text in to join the show at any point in time at 301-747-0718. Today, I am joined by a dear friend of mine, Kim Brady, who is a fellow entrepreneur, a youth soccer coach, LG. BTQ speaker and advocate and all around boss human being. Kim strongly believes that we should be playful, purposeful, and passionate in our life. And you'll see that throughout this conversation. So let's dive into it. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune into Forever Athlete Radio today. Remember, together we go far. Share this episode with a friend, a family member, or a teammate. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts of your biggest takeaways from today's conversation. I will see you all on Monday. But here we go. Kim, welcome to Forever Athlete Radio. I appreciate you joining us today. I'm excited for this conversation. We've connected fairly deeply, I feel like, in the few times that we have actually sat down on the zoom screen to talk i'm still waiting on the day that we are able to our paths to cross in person that will happen here soon but how are you feeling i'm stoked gotta give you credit for your forever (laughs) i want to do that i absolutely love this um i am doing really well welcome to my kitchen my humble kitchen and um i'm excited to to chat with you i i really think that you're a pretty powerful person and and i really have enjoyed our conversations as well and you either go deep or you go home when it's people like us so you know i think that's just how we work yeah well one i appreciate that uh thank you for welcoming us into your catch into your kitchen this morning <laughs> i'm italian uh, come on in, come on in. <laughs> i love it i love it talk to me well really talk with the people tell us about your your sports journey, soccer is your expertise. You're still involved. You're still coaching it to this day. Um, how did you get to a point where you were okay, like fully okay coaching the sport after leaving it uh, all those years? <laughs> so, yes, I, I realize I'm an old lady. I've been doing this for a while. But I started soccer when I was a little girl, like tiny, tiny, tiny little girl. And it was just by pure chance because I was this hyper kid. My brother was older than I was, not athletic at all, but my parents wanted us to be active. Like most parents want their children to be active, mm. want them to do, t- do activities. Um, and they put my brother in sports and he just hated him. He hated T-ball, he hated baseball. He was not going to play football. And he was on the soccer field. And way back when, when a player was, was not good, they were stuck in the back. And my brother would just stand there and just, you know, and he didn't like to be physical. He didn't like to be physically active and it's a contact sport. So he didn't like getting hit. He didn't like doing it. And one day the ball came down the sideline. I'm the little four-year-old he's seven and the ball came down the sideline and my brother didn't go get it. And I got mad and went on the field, just horrifying my parents and interrupted the game. Like I, like a little puppy, like interrupted the game, you know, and go chase after this ball. And my mom was horrified and they picked me up and put me on the side of the field. And the coach was like, give her a ball on the side. She wants to play. This little girl wants to play. She can't play on our team, but put her over here. And that was what started my entire love of the sport was just this eagerness to play with this little ball. And I hated the fact that my brother hated it and I wanted to go do it. And my parents um, put me into ASO when I was, gosh, 
five, six, something like that. So I always say I started it at four when I ran on my brother's field. And then I'm from Orange County, California. So I, you know, had access to different um, soccer areas. It's called JUSA or ASO. It's a recreational league here Mm -hmm. in Orange County. And they put me in that. And then at a very young age, I was being recruited by a coach who saw me play at age nine. And he asked me to play on his club team, his travel team. And my parents know nothing about soccer. Okay. Nothing. They're just like, we don't know anything about this. My kid loves it. What is club soccer? And they basically taught me, even as a nine-year-old little girl, to learn how to talk to my coach. So they Mm -hmm. said, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I'm scared. I don't know who these players are. I think I'm just going to stay in over here. And he's like, okay, Kim, I will call you next year. And he did. He called me the following year. And they said, okay, you need to get on the phone with Mr. Van Winkle and tell him what do you want to do. I'm not ready. And then finally, the third year, I was 11, sixth grade. And he's, he's like, would you like to come? And I'm like, yes. I had finally gotten the shift that I realized I was a little better and wanted more competition. Mm. And so that was when I started playing club. And then I played club ball, indoor. Like I played basketball for fun. You couldn't get me out of the swimming pool. Like I was just this active kid. I took tennis lessons. I love tennis to this day. Um, but soccer just, it, it won me over. And I competed through, I was a varsity player for four years. So I was 13, made varsity starter all four years, won all these awards, played club, did all these awards and played ODP state, the Olympic development program through state team and regionals. And all of it was like, I was surrounded by players who were better than me. And that's hard for, for, for some people to admit. It's not Mm. hard for me to admit everyone around me. I felt was better than me. So I had this work ethic and work rate just to get better. And so I loved that I was on winning teams, but I was never captain. I started most of the time, most of my teams I started, but I still didn't have the perspective that I was better than other players. Cause I was, when I was competing, I was playing against future national team players, future women's world cup champions, future Olympians. And so when you're comparing yourself against these people, you don't see yourself as an elite athlete. I just saw myself as someone who I love, who loved playing the game. And then I was recruited to play at a few colleges and I picked one over the other, even though they offered me less money because also female scholarships are split and part and parceled out. You don't mm-hmm. get full ones really, unless you're like Julie Foudy. Um, But when I was on the regional team, you're looking at all these players and you're at camp. How many of you are going to this school? How many of you are going to this school? Everybody's offered a scholarship. And I'm like, there's not 28 spots available. How am I going to make this team? And so I felt just really driven and really lucky that I was able to compete. And I went to Cal and played four years on a full for uh, not a full to start, but it, it was a four year scholarship that I played for Cal. And it was just, I loved every second of it. And then when I left competing, I moved to Michigan for graduate school because there is, there were no options unless you were on the national team to play even then it wasn't professional mm-hmm. to be on the Olympic team or to be on the women's world cup team that was just happening. So I played against Julie Foudy. I played with and against her on club teams with and against Brandy Chastain with and against Amy Allman, who's now Amy Griffin is a, they're, they're gold medal champions. Right. And these are people I played with. So 
I just got my butt kicked by them all the time. Like they were just this level and here was Kim. And so when I left the team, it, I left it, I left my senior year and that was because of issues with my coach. If you want to know about that, I am more than happy to share, but um, I left with, with the feeling of that. I was unfinished, unfinished mm. business. And when you ask, like, how did you get into coaching? When did you get comfortable with that? Those are two separate questions, right? Um, I left the, I left soccer and moved to Michigan and I was devastated. I was, I literally lost every ounce of who I was. And it was this crazy, like, okay, I'm just going to go to grad school. Nobody knows me. Nobody knows me as an athlete. Nobody knows me as a student athlete. I'm just going to go do my job. And then one of my classmates was in my master's program and he was a coach and he coached his U12 girls and 13 year old girls. And he's like, Hey, I know you played soccer at Cal. We need women to be in coaching ranks. And I want my daughters to meet someone who played college ball. That's not heard of around here. Will you help me coach my kids? And I was like, I don't know if I can do that. You know, it was that feeling Mm -hmm. of like, I'm not playing anymore. I'm done. You know, like I felt like I was washed up. I'm 21 feeling like I'm washed up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then he taught me what I had to do. I went and got coaching license. There's, there's multiple licenses available. I got the basic one, a state license at the time and ended up coaching his daughter's team. And one of those players that was on that team actually ends up being an Olympian and a gold medal, gold medalist. And I still talk with her and she's got a family. She's amazing. She's 35 now, you know, it's crazy. I knew her when she was 12. And so I started pursuing those coaching licenses at that time, started that thought of maybe I'll be a collegiate coach. Maybe I can still do this thing called coaching, but you make no money. You make no money, especially back then. And so I coached as a supplement to put me through graduate school and had three or four jobs to put me through graduate school and all that. And then when I moved to Colorado, um, I left the ther- I used to be a therapist as well. Whatever hat I have, I probably have like six of them. And I used to be a marital and family therapist. And I left that field and moved to Colorado and then coached, bartended, got into sales. And then as I got into the sales realm, I could no longer coach because of the time. So I took, I coached for 13 years took 13 years off and built my company and built my business and moved back home to Southern California four years ago. And then I said, I want to give back to what raised me in my hometown. And I got a position coaching after 14 year hiatus, coaching for the club that I currently work in. And then I just got asked and was hired to be the JV coach at a local high school at Dana Point. So I'm coaching two teams now. I coach uh, basically U17 girls for my club team mm-hmm. and then the JV team at Dana Hills High School. So full circle to come all the way back from where I'm from to try to instill the love of the game into these kids, the way that I developed it naturally. So long story to explain, you know, 40 years of how you got here of how I got here. Yeah. I love it. There's so much, obviously I want to like double click on and zoom in on and, (laughs) and like dissect out of that. I appreciate the share. I mean, the first thing is what I notice is, you had this constant desire to put yourself in these environments that are going to elevate your energy and elevate your play and who you are. Mm-hmm. And then I noticed, well, that you kind of shifted that into grad school, but it wasn't the same level. Do you think that kind of led to that feeling of being washed up or 
yeah, feeling of being yeah. washed up, not being washed up. Let's get that clear. <laughs> yeah, it obviously it's an internal struggle. It's not necessarily an external thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm an I'm an internally driven person and extraordinarily introverted. So I am so highly critical of myself. That's to my detriment, which is you know, sometimes I'm so harsh on myself that I don't see the good things that I'm capable of doing. So I was, even though I, my coaches told me I was very coachable as a player, the hardest part they dealt with, with me was my mindset ever since I was a kid, perfectionism, um, not being good enough, staying focused on a mistake I had made, not able to let it go. And it affected my play for the next five, 10 minutes or so. Um, things like that to really get the strength of emotionality that that we talk about more now than we ever did back then. Um, and so when I left my my career at Cal, I played for three years when I intended to play four. And to step away from my senior year to keep my integrity, there were nine seniors who left and two other freshmen who transferred because of the problems with the coach. So it wasn't just me and I didn't have my only issues with them, but leaving was my choice. And the hardest part was being okay with that decision took me a really long time. Like in, I knew it was the right decision, but Mm -hmm. what, consequence of that was I knew I would never compete at that level ever again. I just was never going to be able to compete at that level ever again. So the feeling of quote washed up was like just having to let go of who I was more so than I'm just never going to play again. And I have some pretty severe injuries. And so when I went to Colorado, I got asked to play on a semi-pro team. I did get offered, I have a caveat, I did get offered to go play in Japan after my senior year, which is the only place that US players were really going. And some of my teammates went to Japan and played, you know, you make like 200 bucks a month and then go live in another country and say you're part of this professional league. And I was like, that does not sound desirable to me. Mm. And so hence the grad school pursuit as well. Um, But what else do you do with a psych degree? You go back to school, you gotta get more education. Um, so the, that whole process, when I, when I went to Colorado and they asked me to play on a semi-pro team, I was 30 at the time. And so there were these players that were coming from some of the schools and some of the organizations around the colleges around, and I'm training in altitude for the first time. And I puke after every practice. I was so sick from altitude sickness. And I remember saying to them, I'm like, I'm 30, I haven't competed. And you guys say you're on a scholarship and you're 19. If I'm beating you in a sprint to the ball, you're not good enough. And so I really was struggling with the identity piece there too, of like, Mm -hmm. I'm better than you at 30 and I haven't touched a ball. Like, is this really semi-pro, you know, like what do these labels mean? Who am I? And so I, I never really... I never really integrated the two for a really long time. I think took me a long time to let go of who I was as a soccer player because it gave me all of my opportunities. Soccer gave me all my opportunities, not anything else, you know? Um, And so it was a really internal struggle for a while. And then we found out how severely my body was broken during that time. And I was like, oh, I cannot play anymore. Like I physically can't compete Mm. at all anymore. So it's like, all right, time to that allowed me in some ways to be okay with my decision when I was 30 versus when I was 21. 
yeah, nine years. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's almost like that second one was a little bit more, more within your control, but also out of your control. If that makes sense, like paradoxically, mm-hmm. your body was the one telling you, Hey, it's time right. to shut it down versus the first go round. It was external coach mm-hmm. relationship kind of saying, Hey, it's time to shut it down. Time to yeah. move on. Even though it's both decisions were in your best interest. Ultimately, it sounds like, mm-hmm. but it's funny how our perception of who is in control, who is making that decision can influence our ability to just internally be okay with mm-hmm. it. If we can shift it into that perception of it's, it is my decision. Right. It's, <laughs> and some of us, I think are like, we want to die on that hill sometimes of like, oh, well, they didn't reject me. I, I wasn't interested in right, 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 that right. or yeah, like I could have been a pro soccer player if I wanted to, but like, <laughs> not me. I know I couldn't have. I mean, I think yeah. there is ability that I carry because I played against some of the best to ever play. Wow. And I knew I wasn't as good as them. So for me, I was just stoked to get in the game, put me in coach, you know, like if I could play with some of these players and learn from them, if I could be around them, if I could, if I could learn and take little ounces of things that you gain from these players. I mean, even some of the things that I learned from Fowdy, she was one of the most influential teammates I've ever played with. And most of the time I competed against her because she played at Stanford and I played at Cal and she's a year older than I am. Um, But when I tried out for the U19 state team at age 16, Mm -hmm. um, it was a struggle and it was going to be a stretch. And I remember her sitting down next to me. I'm this tiny kid sitting next to Julie Fowdy, you know, and I'm like, she's amazing, you know, and she goes, Kimmy, no matter what happens, just come back and play next year. If you don't make it, just work on some of the things you're going to learn. So kind, so influential. And she, and one of her favorite phrases was make your teammate look good. You get better to make your teammate look good. Cause our sport is all about team. It is not an individual sport. And those are phrases that I still use for the kids that I coach now. Make your teammate look good. You want to get better individually so that when you make a pass, you make her look like it was effortless right? The better you become, you make your teammate look good. And I learned that from Julie, you know, and, you know, and then we would compete against each other and she would nutmeg me every game, kick my ass completely. She wouldn't would make you look good. Stanford, you know, and then played with her on a club team in Sonoma. And, and it was now called the California, California storm it was called the, the Sacramento storm back then. And, and again, this was after I left and I was just crying on the side of the field. I'm like, I'm not going to compete anymore. And she's like, whatever you do, don't leave the sport please don't leave the sport. You love this sport so much. I'm just sobbing on the side of the field with Fowdy sitting next to me. And I just couldn't continue playing. I really felt lost at that time. And, you know, when you have that person saying they believe in you, holy crap, that's huge. And so even though I knew I could never be pro, it was like, wow, I got to learn from these people. I got to learn from the best, which is great. Yeah. It's the best when that comes around. That especially those relationships in our life come around at just the right time. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful for the ones in my life where people were able to believe in me prior yeah. to me believing in myself at the level yeah. that I needed to. And it sounds like that was kind of the relationship there. Be also curious with your background in psychology and, and 
<laughs> therapy and all that. Yeah. How did that help maybe that second transition out of yeah. in Colorado processing kind of what happened, the, tra- the trauma that came with it? How did that affect kind of how you dealt with things? So I, I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist when I was a little girl. I'm weird. Um, <laughs> my mom was a teacher. My dad was an aerospace engineer and I didn't want to do either one of those things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause no kid really technically wants to do what their mommy and daddy does. Right. And so when I was little, I was just like, Oh, I, I was always like really trying to understand my friends. And I knew that I was, I knew that I was, different. I knew I was, I didn't know that I was gay when I was that young, but I, I, be, I came out at Cal as well. When I was 17, I came out as a teenager, but I, I started having that, those feelings of I'm different. Why am I different? What, um, what does this mean? And who mm-hmm. am I, who am I connected to? Cause it wasn't even sexual attraction at that point for me. Cause I was very um, naive and young and underdeveloped when it came to me physically and emotionally, I was very naive. So I was, I mean, I started college at 17. So, and then they asked to move me up a grade when I was in first grade. And my mom's like, she's not going to start college at 16. She may have the intelligence, but she's so small, so small and so naive. We did not want that. So I had to catch up with myself at times. And so when I started the pursuit of psychology, it was more out of like just a little kid's curiosity of Mm -hmm. how do I meander this thing called life even as a little girl i told you i'm weird and then i i went to cal and majored in psychology and minored in african-american studies because i wanted to learn about culture different from me which i thought was really fascinating too because i came out at that time and i didn't just want to study western civ to fulfill my history requirement fell in love with uh, with an african-american studies professor who just he was so great and I started pursuing this project of, of perceptions of athletes and sports based on race. And so that was just a, another thing of how do people perceive others, the psychology of, of racism, the psychology of sexism, what's happening with sexual orientation. What do you feel like as a male athlete, if you come out, what do you feel like a female athlete coming out with all these subcategories? So I just had this pursuit and curiosity of psychology. Um, and then when I chose my master's program, I picked a location. There's lots of how I got there, Mm -hmm. but I ended up going to a school in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which was culture shock. I mean, going from Berkeley and the Bay area to Kalamazoo, Michigan in every category was culture shock, the weather, the people, the location, all of it. And when your professors from your school are using books that were written by your professors at your undergrad this is a whole animal that I really had to kind of take into consideration. My ego got in the way there. I was a little cocky because I was like, I already know this stuff that was written by my professor. It took me over a year in graduate school to really have the professors take me to another level Mm -hmm. as far as uh, what I was learning. And I ended up having a specialty in marital and family therapy. And I was never a couch therapist. So you never saw me in an office where we discuss and I take notes. That's not, the style of therapy that I did. I worked with and specialized in working with severely abused and neglected children and worked alongside law enforcement, community agencies. My degree was community agency counseling. So 
if a child was failing in a school system and they're violent in class or their their learning disabilities are inhibiting them from being social in school if they're failing in particular areas those were the kids that i was working with really hardcore intense really damaging situations that i witnessed these youth go through it was very difficult and they say that um people who were in my role only last two to ten years of doing that type of work and i did it for seven and again i had to make this change and say i no longer can continue this path and i think with me making that choice as a soccer player mm -hmm. allowed me to make that decision as a therapist to leave what i had spent my entire education pursuing and that's the second time that i had to leave something that i had pursued for years and my parents talked to me about that they're like it makes sense that now that you've gone through these experiences that you're capable of leaving things that no longer suit you and start out things that most people wouldn't start and that was what happened with corporate america that's what happened with leaving my company you know all those things and so truly soccer and that athlete personality of understanding who you are at your core i could translate into work and in those environments I think the background with me being a therapist helps me have massive compassion mm -hmm. for people. I am very empathetic. I feel at a depth that is annoying to a lot of people. I mean, I'll cry at a Kleenex commercial. If I'm reading something out loud that I've written that was painful for me in the past, I'll still cry to you in front of you. I probably will cry three times through this whole process. We'll deal with it. But I'm just that kind of person. So I think that that helps. I think it genuinely helps for the kids that I'm coaching right now that background because half of them are going through a bunch of stuff, teenage angst for one thing, but COVID and family mm -hmm. dynamics and, you know, things are hard for kids right now. So even though I'm not a therapist, licensed therapist at all anymore, I left that when I left Michigan. Um, I don't think you can take that away from you. You know, it's like you just add layers and you just use what works. Yeah. Yeah. You said it earlier. Obviously we're, we're big on labels here. Uh, <laughs> it's really why the, the show was created why exactly. i wanted to create forever athlete was really an extension of me trying to figure out me yeah figuring out like what is the label that serves me and i think one of the things that you hit on there is something that athletes struggle with the most is like we are like oh man i just put so much time into this thing how could i ever walk away from it Mm -hmm. You see it in relationships all the time. Well, like, yeah, my partner's not the, the best person all the time, but like we've been dating or seeing each other for four or five, six years. Mm -hmm. I can't walk away from that. <laughs> so I, I respect your ability to recognize when the relationships, the environment, the things in your life aren't serving you to that full purpose anymore to drop your ability to drop the ego and say i'm gonna go be a beginner again i'm gonna go start a business i'm gonna leave this i'm gonna get therapy i'm gonna get into sales and i'm gonna leave that business that then i i spent my time my energy my efforts and building that up and i'm gonna go start again how have you gotten okay with being a beginner again because that's something so many athletes struggle with because they're used to at a certain point 
things became the hard things became easy and they forget the four-year-old running onto the field at her brother's soccer game and the joy that that brought and they're like i I can never do that again why would i do that again why am i going to go back to that struggle that's one very powerful question Two, going back to your forever athlete versus former athlete. I think that has a lot to do with it. Something and why I really am stoked to be involved with your project. The, the piece of how did I reconcile that? Mm-hmm. The, the pain of staying the same was more than staying. So I too have settled and stayed in dynamics that weren't healthy whether that was a work dynamic with the abusive boss, whether that was a coach that I didn't do well with, I stayed too long with, um, or a person that I had dated that was not good for me, et cetera. I, I have done those things. The question you ask of how do I become okay with being a beginner again? Um, I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. Um, but the pain of staying the same means that I just was like, I can no longer do this thing. So whatever the next thing is, I didn't need to define. It was, I just know that I cannot, will not continue in this pattern anymore. So, and, and it's part of the, the, you'll learn when you read my, my solo project, this all comes out in my book. Um, but it really was about how I needed to walk my talk. My nieces and nephews are my most important thing in the world. And my nephew is the reason why I quit my corporate job and started my own company. Um, and it's like, I'll figure it out. I am a beginner starting at the bottom sucks, suck it up, learn all that you can learn. And the one thing that I have learned about myself over time is I absolutely love learning. And when I get to a place of mastery, I end up being bored. Mm. And that's a very powerful tool to use to allow me to become the beginner again. What else do I want to learn? What else do I want to focus on? How am I able to pursue something at full 100% effort like we do in sport? How do I translate that part of who I am into my journeys and into my endeavors and into the things that I've chosen to do was I have to love it. I have to focus on it. I have to love it. But what parts of it do I love? A lot of us don't necessarily like the grind of training, but the discipline of it that it provides, the fitness that it brings to us, the ability for us to master what we're doing to win a match, or in your case, to win a race, to improve your speed, to taper your times, to do all those things is like, there's a process there, right? And I love process. So once I learned that part about me over time, It's why we chase goals all the time. It's why we're dissatisfied with achievement. It's always the next thing. Mm -hmm. What's that next thing? And so that athlete mentality for me is like, well, what's my next thing? What's next? What's next? Did I hit the peak that I could hit in this particular area? If I did, then I need to move on to something else. Even if I didn't, I still aimed for it. But chasing achievement and the feeling of the achievement is fleeting. But the process of the feelings for me, 
that constant wanting to learn, that's where my flow state is to talk to, uh, to your processing. That's where that flow state is for me, is learning. It's that hunger to be better. It's that hunger to be a better Kim. And how that manifests has been in sport, has been in coaching, has been in being a business owner. It's been in all these arenas. And the only times that I don't feel that I was allowed that flow and I was allowed that creativity was working in corporate America, was working in environments that inhibited me from continuing that pursuit of mastery. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even I'll, I'll do my best to be the best Kim. And again, that's the internal thing. So I'm extremely competitive internally, but I'm not competitive against other people. I couldn't care less. Couldn't care less when anybody else does, which is why I get so excited about coaching. You know, I want to see the success of others. I couldn't care less if you're better than me. Let's go. You know, I want to celebrate that. And so again, it's that constant learning and being humble enough to be around people better than you. I love being around people smarter than me, better than me, bigger than me, faster than me. I just crave learning. And that's that's that hunger. That's where my flow is. If I'm not learning, I'm miserable. If I'm idle, I'm miserable. Yeah. I freaking love all of that. <laughs> I'm, I'm very similar to you. Um, yeah. I feel like the I've always been that constant curious learner. Mm-hmm. And I, I lit up more. I noticed it in college a lot too. Like I lit up more in motor control and learning like neuroplasticity classes. And then also having some psychology uh, classes, childhood development psychology yeah. was like a fascinating class to me that excited me so much more than like general bio and like chem sure. and all of those things. And I was just like, oh, God, this doesn't make any sense. Like my... <laughs> My G, like my grades in those easier quote unquote classes were actually way worse. They were some of the worst grades I ever got in college. So I just wasn't excited about it. Whereas like this harder level of thinking and classes, I was getting A's in and it just felt easy. But I think what you brought up there is a really good point. If we can stay curious, we can make whatever that new thing is about really learning and getting excited for that learning, the power of the mindset. We we can also shorten that gap that we are just that beginner, you know what I yes. mean? And But that requires a certain level of dropping your ego and saying, hey, you don't have all the answers here. Be open to a new way. Be open right. to a new way of doing it. You disclosed to me before recording here with your book project uh, coming out on the solo book specifically, you hired a book coach. Mm-hmm. Walk me through the the process of how you came to that realization that you were like, I'm, I want to do this one, write a book, pro- like go and be a freaking published author Two, hire a book coach to help you do it. So I thrive with good coaches like most people do. I thrived as an athlete with great coaches. I struggled under poor coaching. Um, I thrived under good teachers. I struggled under poor teachers, right? We all have forms of coaching and teaching in our lives. We all do, whether we're athletes or not. Um, And my friends are the reason why I wrote a book because they constantly were mad at me that I hadn't written one yet. 
Um, I tend to write a lot. I've always been kind of a writer to get my thought processes out. Um, my minor is actually a literature minor. So I, I had to write paper after paper after paper and, and analyze things at Cal. And, and then um, I, I did, I've always done some form of writing in particular ways. And, and especially when I struggle, especially when I can't get it out of my head, you know, when I'm with my therapist and he or she is just like, you need to get it out of you, you need to write it out. And then as, um, you know, social media and stuff, and you write your thoughts, you do certain things. And I've had several friends who are like, man, some of the things you write get me to think. I really like how you write. Keep saying and speaking your voice. It's really important to be heard. And I and I was like, who wants to listen to someone like me? I was never, you know, I was never the best at anything. You know, I never, I never was. Who's going to be impacted by what I say? Like, why would I do it? And I had this whole self reject constantly. And then one of my best friends, he's a professor and he speaks multiple languages. He's brilliant. We've known each other since Cal and he's one of the funniest human beings I've ever met. And um, I just love the man. And when I, after, during, prior to COVID, BC, before COVID, after COVID, I can't remember. I had gone up to San Francisco to go see him. He's the chair of ethnic studies at San Francisco state. Um, And we sat around and I write this story in my book because it was so impactful, but I was just freaking out. I had sold my company. COVID was hitting. I was a mess. I'm just sitting there and going, oh my God. And he's like, he's like, dude, here's a martini. Why aren't you writing a book? And I just sat there dumbstruck. And he's just like, I'm sick of it. I'm sick and tired of you rejecting yourself. I'm sick and tired of you going through this pity party, go crying your martini, figure it out. You need to write, figure it out. And he's a published author. You know, he's a researcher and all this stuff. And I'm like, and he goes, I need you to talk to Allward. I need you to talk to these people we know. And, and yeah. she's like, dude, you need to write a book. I'm like, okay. And then another friend of mine, he's like, when are you writing a book? Fast forward to all this stuff. And when I finally started niching down with my business coaching and really understanding the type of people I really want to work with, how can I share the story of how the heck I built a company over 10 years with never taking a business class? How can I get that? to be conveyed to people and not have to do kind of a memoir style. And I talked with a few other people like, Kim, just do a brain dump, just do stream of consciousness writing, which I do anyway. And they're like, we'll sort it all out. We'll figure out your chapters. We'll do all this. And that was a mind mess for me. Like I was like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And so then the book coach found me on LinkedIn because he started seeing what I was doing and that he was reading my content. And then he was seeing that my niche was working with athletes and, and wanting them to be build their own businesses and stuff. So he reached out to me around the same time that Taj reached out to me. And it just kind of was, there's no coincidences in life. It was when the student will arrive, you know, when the teacher appears and, and that's ha- what happened with Les, my book coach. He's not a group coaching book coach. He doesn't take on 300 people, give you some generic thing. He does coaching the way I do coaching, go deep or go home. I don't want just some fluff and I don't necessarily just want, I don't mind evergreen content. I really think it's powerful. However, comma, I want to know people. I want to really dive into who they are and build a relationship with this person. And so he spoke with me and talked with me about his process and that he takes on 12 clients a year and he works with them for six months at a time. And I said, I want to do it in three. How do I do that? He's like, okay, you're an athlete. And so 
<laughs> he has this process. And then I chose to take that process and multiply it times two and allocated. I was just disciplined, just like we were in sport. You know, I was like, all right, I have two hours of training every single day. I'll do two hours of writing every single day. Not that hard to do. And so I did an interview with him every week per chapter. And then I, because I, I shrunk the time frame, I did two interviews per week. So he would interview me. We would walk through the outline of what I wanted that chapter to be. And then I would take two hours of a time block, which is why that's what you would see. I would put myself in a coffee shop away from my kitchen yeah. in a creative space with a bunch of sound and music around me and caffeinated and all that. And I would time block and I would only focus on writing my chapter. And then I would send that back to him. He would read it and give me feedback if he thought I needed to change something or add something to it. And then we would go through the next chapter and then I would write it. So I literally would be in interviews twice a week and I would write four hours a week and I have a 200 page book in three months. It's impressive <laughs> to say the least. I'm excited. I'm going to be a published author times two because of you, sir. And I'm, oh. I can't wait to read the story. Obviously we're going to encourage people listening in right now to go grab their copy too, um, as I'm sure you are just scratching the surface. And oh my gosh, I feel like we're, so we're going deep in it here. Um, yeah. but like, there's so much, there's this so much is my more. actual manuscript for That's me to handwrite my own edits and send in. But I was like, I officially have a 200 page book. Are you serious right now? Like in your hands. <laughs> Never did I think that I would go from my pen and paper that I still do to that. Well, talk to me real quick because you said, you know, the accomplishment is fleeting and all that, but it's got to feel damn good to have like a hardcore, like actual physical manuscript in your hands, right? Yes. You enjoyed the process, but you have this in your hands now. Yeah. I had sent, I sent the manuscript. So I spoke with Taj and we figured out, you know, cause I, I was like, okay, I have some ideas for cover. I have some ideas for my title. I haven't disclosed the title yet to anybody because I don't have my book cover yet. Um, cause I want that to go out with yours. I want them to be matched up. Um, and I have all these concepts and you know, you send this document over electronically. Right. And my book coach, she goes, take that file and print it off bind it, do whatever, get it done. You need to have that manuscript in your hand. You're not going to realize how powerful this is until you realize this is yours. Every word in it, I wrote the back cover. I wrote the, about the author. I wrote the title is mine. The logo is mine. Everything is mine. I'm like, Oh my God, you know, and I got this printed yesterday. So I sent over the file to FedEx and said, your stuff is ready at one And I, I got the email and I went over and I'm like, I, that feeling I'm, 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 I'm proud yeah. of myself, but I can say that, you know, I mean, even if, even if people don't really enjoy the book per se, it's the accomplishment. I am internally proud of the fact that I did something that not a lot of people can say that they've done. And it helps, it helps, you know, as I said to you, it's really important for me to walk my talk that mm -hmm. I go to therapy and I was a therapist. I, played soccer and I coach soccer. I have hired business coaches and I've built a company. I am a business coach and I'm an author. Like I can say those things because I've done them. That's the process piece that I like. Mm -hmm. And it's that social proof of like, oh, I'm not just talking out of my butt. You know, there is no ego there. Like I, I did it. So I'm, I am proud of that. Yes. Yes. I'm when the, I get the book itself, it'll be different. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm imagining the joy I get. Uh, it's so funny because my Amazon device, I won't say her by name, it's right behind the computer. She right. literally just went off with a notification that I got a delivery here. And uh-huh. I noticed like the dopamine hit that I get from that. I'm like, heck yeah. Like so many people get that from online shopping. I'm definitely one of those people. But I would imagine the level of dopamine flowing into your brain when you got that FedEx notification saying this thing that you've been working on for three months, which is really like you've been working on it your whole life to come up with the content to write on it is ready for pickup. I would imagine that's like tenfold any high that I'm getting from my package of I don't even know what I ordered. Just get oh, yeah, <laughs> like when you deal with the with the dopamine state of that of accomplishment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I and I think when you touch on on how people need to tap back into who they were as an athlete, and and we all chase something. Mm-hmm. We all have certain internal drivers. So some of us who are high performance chase the goal, chase the the feeling of accomplishment chase the feeling, for example, of the recognition or chase the feeling, you know, so we're chasing something and I think humans do it in general, but I think there's something very specific to those of us who are high performers as athletes. And what I was chasing when I, that I couldn't replicate in corporate America was the feeling of a team, the Mm. power of team. And I talk about that in my book of why athletes become really good CEOs and business owners and things like that because of what we're chasing. And so if you can tap into that flow state of what it is that you do well, and then surround yourself with people who do things that you don't do well, regardless of whether you're an individual athlete or or a team athlete, it's your drivers. And if you really have a good way of, of doing that mind, body, soul connection that you always talk about and getting in that flow state, how do you tap into that, that it doesn't matter what the environment is that you're in. If you can tap into that feeling and do those dopamine hits and do those things, you feel a sense of purpose because yeah. all of us need to be purposeful. We are, we just forget sometimes how to chase that little girl who is four years old on a soccer field again, because we get told what the box is that we're supposed to be in. And I don't want that. I want everybody to find that person, that inner athlete again, and go, what's my ripple? How do I do this again in another place? And I'm constantly getting to that in my, with my coaches or with my employees or bleh, employees and clients. I have both. Um, yeah. But I had two coaching sessions prior to talking to you on the podcast. <laughs> so I literally had these two uh, clients yeah. distinctly different, but wanting to get them into what makes them tick. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit on it and we're going to go back to the Amazon device for a second. It's like, (laughs) it has unfortunately conditioned us that in relation to like the social media game, I'm looking off to my left because that's where my phone is right now. It's like, that's conditioned us to like dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit. Dangerously so too addictive. We need that drip, but those dopamine heads don't do anything in alignment towards that, that higher purpose, that mission. And because of that, we oftentimes are wandering around feeling a little bit lost. We're still getting hits from time to time and feeling good, but it's not 
that delayed satisfaction that we got as athletes. I, I know swimming was a really good example of this. It was like, I had two shots a year to go a personal best time. Right. And if I missed those shots, I just got back at practice. It kind of sucked, but I got to practice the next day or two days later after I sat with it and dealt with it. And I got back to work and I started going again. I think what you did with your book project really, really smartly was you aligned some dopamine hits along the way, sharing the process with other people, highlighting the wins. And it's led to a faster process than most people going through it. It's just an observation that I have made as we're having this conversation here. Well, thank you. It's it's like, I think the other piece, when you talk about the addiction and the dopamine hits too, we're also in a constant state of depletion. We mm-hmm. never fully empty the tank to then fully get it full again. We're in this constantly working at a quarter tank, dope, 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 dope. And that's the issue of having you know, whether it's, whether it's a, an, a, an addiction of drugs or an addiction of something else that is powerful to really understand how our brains work um, and what those, those endorphins, serotonin and dopamine, and what are these things replicating? Mm-hmm. And it's also why I think some athletes truly struggle again, not knowing themselves internally of their internal drivers, they may not have to have the neuropsychology and the neurophysiology that you understand for them to recognize they're missing something when they leave their sport or they're in pain from the physical issues of the injuries that we deal with, or they're in mental anguish because of the, the other issues that we face as, as high level athletes as well, whether it's eating disorders or struggle with identity and physique, like our physicality changes, you know, what do we look like when we're no longer training six hours a day, you mm-hmm. know, and all of a sudden you only have time to go work out for a half an hour and your body changes or you gain weight or as you get older or you face medical um, issues, I think that um, really getting to know yourself again as a whole being and that that driver of being an athlete can can push you, but who you are as a whole being matters more than anything else. And so I think that's why the labels are so powerful of being able to change the verbiage that we use to describe ourselves, to describe our work, to describe how we live our lives. You know, it's, it's why people need labels to help categorize stuff to make sense of things, but then to not have that label overtake us that, that mm. we're still a, a whole human being and our, you know, we're perfectly imperfect exactly as we are. And how do we, how do we take those imperfections to be the best version of you? And so for me, I'm so petrified on social media, like that you don't realize it. I'm glad even Taj said, he goes, I wouldn't guess based on the content that you put out that that really is hard for you. And like social media makes me anxiety ridden every day, anxiety ridden. It's like, I don't want to be in front of the screen. I don't want to do these selfie, this and video this. I I don't know how to do that. And so he's like, my business coach, another one, I've had like four of them. Um, Technically I've had seven, eight business coaches in 11 years, but all for different reasons, all different Mm -hmm. things that I was working on with them. And he's like, go do podcasts, go have people interview you. You're naturally doing that. And then just put videos up and you'll be fine. You don't have to do it in this, in this, like you're making too big of a deal out of it. And I'm like, all right, well, people like it. Great. If they don't, and just letting go of some of that image oriented piece of it is also difficult. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a great point. I feel like our perception of other people, you never know what's actually going through 
mm-hmm. their side of the story. I would literally get so frozen trying to figure out what to do on social media that I wouldn't do it for two days because I literally would freak out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I yeah. mean, you're not alone in that. I feel like a lot of people, it's if you can shift it to a point where you're playing to your strengths, to your business mm-hmm. coach's point of capturing content that's already being created anyway for you, right. sharing right. that, like you're playing to your, the ball is now in your court again. That's really what it's about. Yeah. Um, Kim, I know we're, we're running a little bit out of time here, but we, we're definitely going to have to do a part two. We're going to, we can dive into this for days. You and I could talk for days. I swear. I need to, I need to drive up to Venice. I need to come and hang out and make it happen. Yeah. We'll make it happen. But I want to one, acknowledge you for the level at which you share and just the way you carry yourself. It is something that I look up to and, and really admire in you and, Two, I want to end with the fast five, which are just five one sentence, one word answers, kind of rapid fire, have the people get to know you a little bit here. Uh-oh. The first one is what is your go-to podcast that you're jamming out to? What's my go-to podcast? Female footballers. Nice. Good choice. So, um, do you know them? No, but I'm imagining it has to do with women's soccer. Yes. <laughs> footballers. Yes. Yes. Okay. Shout out to Cassie Gray, who, who uh, built that from scratch. Um, also a Cal grad, about 12 years younger than I am, and specializes in working with getting, getting girls opportunities that they normally wouldn't have. She's fantastic, and they just started their podcast, and I'm stoked for them. Yeah. Amazing. I'll have to go check it out. Number two is... What's your favorite book that you've read in the past year? Not that you've written, because you've written enough. <laughs> that I've written <laughs> That I've read? Choose yep. Yourself. What was Choose it? Yourself. Choose Yourself by James Altucher. Nice. And I wrote, I read his uh, Choose Yourself to Wealth as well, but I think Choose Yourself was pretty fascinating. I'll have to check it out. Number three is what's something that you can't live without? That I can't live without? Mm-hmm. Love and hugs. Ironically, that has not been shared on this one, but I love that answer. Love and hugs. Simple (laughs) enough. It's a good life right there. Number four, what's a quote that you live by? Mm, I have so many quotes. Um, Now you're going to make me cry. It's part of my dedication to my grandparents. Um, Give me a second. Uh, all work is honorable as long as you don't lie, cheat, or steal. And it was from my grandpa because he was an immigrant and he left Italy at 17 to come to the United States in 1920. And he and my grandma were the most important people to me. That's how I build my company too. It makes me cry because I'm just so proud of them. Like this book has is dedicated to them. So yeah. That's beautiful. I appreciate you sharing that one. Told you at some point you're going to make me cry, dang it. We got it. We got it. Uh, <laughs> it's not the you intention. Mind, you cut that out and flip me in again. No, no. <laughs> I'd rather be intention. real. I'd rather be real. But it's true. Because I started and built my own cleaning company, people treat people in the service industry like crap. And mm. it's that whole concept of treat the janitor the same way as the CEO. And I was both. 
And I don't care about cleaning a, a toilet for someone else because that's your sanctuary. Everybody deserves to have a four walls that are safe and, and a sanctuary for their home. And if someone is uh, do, being of service to you, it doesn't matter what they're doing. And so he always was just like, you have to be you have to be honorable. That was really important to him to be a good citizen and to become an American citizen was to be honorable. And so he was just like, whatever you do, Kimmy Annie, don't lie, cheat or steal. All work is honorable. And that's where that came from. Yeah. Absolutely love that. I would say you're doing a fantastic job at doing just that. Number five is what is your one word focus at this point in time? What is my one word focus at this time? <laughs> I don't have one. Um, I don't know. I th- maybe, maybe just, you know, trust, trust that I, that I'll get all this going and that, you know, I'll build the traction that I need. Just trust the process. Trust. I think if you lift that quote, like you continue to do, you got trust. You got a winning recipe right there. Kim, I, again, I appreciate you, the way you show up, just who you are. It's, Thank you. It's an inspirational person. I'm honored to share this space with you today. Where can those listening in keep up with you, all the amazing work that you're doing, things that, the projects that you're putting out, the book, where can they find you? Pretty much everywhere. Um, LinkedIn as Kim Brady. My website is KimBradyBusinessCoaching.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all as Coach KB. I think you can find me as Coach KB or Coach KB15, one of the two, because you know one handle doesn't work yep. on one out, but Coach KB, I think, is the most common one. And Kim Brady Business Coaching. And once we get our books up and our links and everything ready for pre launch, that will all be on every single channel and the website and all that stuff as well. Amazing. We'll, we'll make it easy for the listener. We'll have all that linked below. Again, yes. Kim, appreciate the time, especially Thank on a Friday. You. Sun's coming out. <laughs> I hope you have a, a wonderful weekend. Coaching goes well. Are you coaching all, all weekend? Yeah, I actually, I have to be at practice in about an hour. And then I have two matches that I'm coaching this weekend for my club team. So it's all soccer all this Amazing. weekend. And um, yeah, I'm excited because I, 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 I'll end with this. Like I have this room for business coaching in the morning and then I coach in the afternoon and then I try to get my own workouts in and then I'm writing and I'm time blocking like I did back in college. I'm like, sweet. I feel kind of like I'm 21 again, even though I'm not. And so that's, that's like, all right. Yeah. So. That is the secret to being a forever athlete. Yes. Getting that time blocking in that structure, yeah. that organization so you can execute. Okay. I love it. Good luck this Thank weekend. You, Your girls are going to crush you it. So yeah. Thanks.